Coming to you from the Outer Mission, this is Monkey Block, a storytelling podcast focused on San Francisco's golden past, 1849 through 1906. I'm your host, Girlina. The stories are closely based on newspapers of the time, historical books, and journals. Disclaimer, I do my best to research and share the real stories, extracting legends or calling them out. Now, let's go back in time. Today I focus on a foreigner with an undeniable impact on California. Not William Heath Davis Jr., although this person has a direct relationship with Davis. I've quickly mentioned this name in previous episodes, knowing at some point I'd go into more detail because their story directly impacts Yerba Buena, San Francisco, and California history. Something I've learned with time is that no one is all bad and no one is all good. Although some people have a higher percentage of bad than good to report, humans are complicated. Was he an adventurer or an empire builder, a clever businessman, a land developer, or a slave owner who tamed undeveloped land and its people through cruel and illegal means? Could all of these descriptions about one person be true? Any guesses who I'm discussing? Today's episode is about the complicated life of Johann Augustus Sutter, better known as John Sutter. There's more to this man's story than I anticipated, and I went into this knowing there would be a lot to tell. I underestimated how much backstory there was before Sutter arrives in California. What's difficult about telling Sutter's history is the amount of self-glorification, period romanticism, journalistic fiction, or exaggeration based on a kernel of truth and intentionally silenced unfavorable legacy. To further complicate this, Sutter, early in life, carefully curated his image in spoken and written form. If you take his personal memoirs at face value, you'll see him in the light he wanted to be seen and only discusses the stories he wants to be remembered by. If you compare his autobiographical memoirs against first-hand accounts from people who personally knew him, you can see the two narratives and tease apart some fact from fiction. But Sutter had admirers as well as well-earned enemies who wrote about him based on their perspective. I do my best to fairly capture the essence of a story, in this case the man, and extract the legend, which is especially hard to do, when Sutter was literally able to build his life on a created persona. Are you ready? Here we go. Today's episode is largely based on the writings of two people whom I feel best studied and captured Sutter's many sides, Albert L. Hurtado's Empires, Frontiers, Filibusters, and Pioneers, The Transitional World of John Sutter, also by Albert L. Hurtado, John Sutter, A Life on the North American Frontier, and James Peter Zollinger's John 
Augustus Sutter's European background. While John Sutter is best known for the gold rush, his time in California precedes the discovery of gold via New York, Missouri, New Mexico, Hawaii, and then Alaska, Sutter finally arrives in Monterey, California on July 2nd, 1839, on the ship Clementine. The ship arrives with, and I've read conflicting reports, with three or ten Kanakas, that's Hawaiians, and their wives, two or five Germans who are mechanics, and with or without a large bulldog on board. I'll go with Sutter's own statement that he arrived with eight Kanakas, two of which were married and brought their wives, five white men, three of which were mechanics, and I'm guessing those were the Germans, and the bulldog. In Monterey, Sutter promotes himself as an ex-captain of the elite Royal Swiss Guard of King Charles X of France. Hold on to that providing letters of recommendation which describe the Swiss captain in a favorable light, as one would expect from letters of recommendation. Some of the letters were addressed to Governor Juan Bautista Alvarado and some to Alvarado's uncle, the very ambitious General Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo. Side note, there was no tension between Alvarado and Vallejo, so Sutter played it safe by appealing to both men. Smart move. Sutter was commonly described as pudgy, square set, purposeful, charming, and mysterious, but he was also described as moody and depressed. Two different personal accounts describe Sutter as, at times, suicidal. It seems all the narratives were true depending on when you met him. Also, of historical note, his heavy drinking. This ex-military captain shows up in Alta, California, like other foreigners during 1839, so out of context, there is nothing extraordinary about his actual arrival in California, but context is everything. I'm always curious about a person's why and how, their backstory, and today's no different. Before I get into Sutter's arrival in California, let's take a step back way back, as I go down this pre-California Sutter rabbit hole. My question was, why did Sutter leave Switzerland for California? Which seemed like an easy question, but the answer has more backstory than I could have imagined. The story begins in Germany, 1803, when Johann Augustus Suter, spelled with one T and pronounced Suter, not Sutter, is born. One of his earliest memories was watching Napoleon's dominance over Switzerland. He was impressed by the uniforms, the plumes, the cannons. His father came from a lineage of peasant papermakers, but starting with his grandfather and father, the family managed to move one step above peasantry, which is how Johann Suter grew up. The family moved from papermaker to paper mill owner. Moving up in stature was not an easy thing to do at that time, but it shows the grandfather and father were ambitious men. Souter worked for his father's paper mill, observing his father's management of a business and people. A teenage Souter realized working at a paper mill was not his life's dream. His father agreed, and Souter left Germany for Switzerland in 1819 to pursue an apprenticeship 
with a book printer, publisher, and distributor, where he worked as a book clerk. From papermaking to owning a paper mill to hopefully book printing, the Souter family pinned their hopes on Johan to further move the family up in societal stature. But when the apprenticeship was not renewed, as hoped, Johan found himself in a difficult financial situation. That's polite code for being extremely poor. Penniless Souter moved several times before finding a job at a drapery shop where he met and hitched his proverbial wagon to Annette Dubeld, the physically and financially attractive daughter of a wealthy widowed mother who ran a successful bakery and restaurant. It's likely she was a customer at the shop. It's 1826, and he's still Souter, so I'll continue to say Souter until he becomes Sutter. Souter is 23 years old, and Annette is pregnant with Souter's child. Five months into the pregnancy, Souter asks the wealthy widow, Frau Rossina Dubeld, for her daughter's hand in marriage. But the mother was not a fan of Souter and declined the proposal. There is speculation that the daughter, Annette, withheld her five-month condition that's polite code for pregnant, from her mother when the marriage proposal was made. However, eight months into her condition, the proposal was accepted and a marriage was planned for the following month. Literally one day after their marriage, Annette gave birth to the first of five suitor children. You see what happened here. Not bad for a drapery clerk. The widowed mother-in-law controlled the family's finances, which I imagine was the opposite of what Souter hoped for. Smart lady. But the mother-in-law helped him open Johann Augusta Souter and Company, a dried goods and drapery store. If one Souter in the family was bad, guess what happens next? Soon after the marriage, Johann's younger brother, Jacob Frederick, arrives to help with the business and further infuriates the mother-in-law when Jacob Frederick marries Anna's younger sister. Frau Rosina now has two suitors in the family. I bet she was thrilled. Johan takes on a third business partner, his destructive friend named Benedict. When times are good, the family lives prosperously and lavishly. Johan gets a taste for the finer things, but changes on the way. Two years later, in 1828, Souter's business and marriage are starting to fall apart. So Johann joins the Reserve Corps of Canton of Bern, hoping to make important connections. He becomes a junior officer, so he has some military ranking. He gets a uniform and command of other men. Johann realizes this is what he was meant to do. His brother Jacob and the friend Benedict continue working at the store but the prosperous times are behind them. Johan talks creditors into loaning him money to keep the business afloat. I'm guessing his mother-in-law wasn't willing to give him more money. But Souter is still unable to pay his debts. This will be the first of many times in his life. Despite this, the lavish lifestyle continues. Six years later, in 1838, Souter is 28 years old. His military affiliation didn't help the way he had hoped. And the disastrous friend, Benedict, he runs away with the majority of the store's inventory and sells it. 
Johan failed to take the legal protective measure to remove Benedict from the business once he realized what had happened. As a result, Johan and his brother are left with the incurred debt to pay for the merchandise that Benedict ran off with. Without the ability to secure more credit, and with their inventory gone, the Suter brothers are unable to fund their lavish lifestyle or their business. Johan Suter was never known as a details guy and would figuratively pay the price for overlooking the legal details on this one. Figuratively. Hold on to that. In parallel, Anna's sister's marriage to Jacob falls apart. Jacob was a heavy drinker and even less capable of being a stable breadwinner than his brother Johan. Anna's sister has the good sense to divorce Frederick. Frederick's drinking becomes debilitating. He becomes a public charge and gets deported back to Germany. Smart lady. Johan takes inventory of his life. He has an overbearing mother-in-law, a failed business, a crumbling marriage, a deported brother, a friend who swindled the business, leaving him as the last man standing for a heavy debt. Things aren't going well. He's now the sole man responsible for a debt of 50,000 Swiss francs. And to make matters worse, there's now a warrant for his arrest for his outstanding debt. Johan himself said he had already spent too much time in jail for other things and was not going to debtor's prison, no sir. I was unable to track down what he had been in jail for previously. I tried. Johan is crafty, so he learns to speak Spanish and English in addition to his Swiss, French, and German. And there's a very good reason for that. Hold on. Johan is penniless, without access to more credit, so he decides to abandon Switzerland, his failing business, the debt, the warrant for his arrest, his wife, and five children. It takes him two days to escape Switzerland for France on foot at night to avoid being seen. He reported sneaking into a barn somewhere along the way for shelter and milking a cow into his hat for food. He arrives in France, obtains a French passport. He forges a letter of credit, enabling him to secure some merchandise for future trade and gets on a ship headed towards the United States. Good thing he knows some English. To be fair, after helping him secure the French passport, his wife helped him leave Europe. So while he did technically leave in the middle of the night, it wasn't without her knowledge or without her assistance. I'm curious, though, why she didn't divorce him and follow in her sister's footsteps. Speculation on my part that there must have been promises made and that this separation was meant to be temporary. That abandoned debt doesn't go away and affects Johan's wife and five children more than anyone else. While Sutter figuratively paid the price for this debt, Anna and her children would literally pay the debt he left. They spend the next 16 years living an impoverished life, living in an old farmhouse, depending on the family's charity, while Johan Suter gets a fresh start in the United States. By this point, the mother-in-law is deceased, and I bet she's screaming from her grave, why didn't you listen to me? More speculation, had Anna known she would spend the next decade and a half in poverty by helping her husband abandon his debt, I wonder if she would have divorced Johan rather than helping him out of the country. So quick recap, 
Johann Suter leaves Switzerland, learning how to convince banks and businessmen to give him credit. His debts are someone else's problem. And more importantly, he leaves realizing his persona is his best asset. The template for the person history will get to know is just being created. Johann lands in New York on July 14, 1834, armed with his proverbial artillery, the English language, his military uniform, nice clothes, a small stash of goods for sale, and his best asset, his slick tongue. But New York is too close to Switzerland and their ability to find him, so he moves to Ohio, then Indiana, and then, like many Central European men, he settles in Missouri, which at the time was the West, as in west of the Mississippi River. Now in the United States, Johann Augustus Suter becomes John Sutter. This next chapter in Sutter's life is interesting, like many other chapters in this man's life. It's late 1835 in St. Louis, Missouri, and Sutter makes friends with a Prussian colonel who comes to town and makes his presence known, announcing he is from great wealth. The Prussian colonel quickly gains attention and friends by lavishly entertaining with parties, rented carriages and sleighs, and lots to drink. The Prussian colonel's manners are indicative of someone well-raised from a good family with money. He dressed well, and he has so many outrageous stories. He came in like a storm, a believable storm, and everybody loved him. Despite being from great wealth, the Prussian colonel showed up in St. Louis with great stories and parties, but he didn't show up with money. All of his spending was on credit. The colonel promised to pay the business owners where he ran up tabs and repay the personal loans from his new friends once his steamer with expensive merchandise and money arrived. Could I please borrow a bit of money, dear friend, until the steamer arrives? I will certainly repay you and then some for your generosity. Sutter was one of the friends to loan the colonel money. On another note, the Prussian colonel's advice to Sutter was to form a trading caravan to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Sutter takes note of everything the colonel is saying and doing. Keep track of that sentence. And the steamer, with the merchandise and money to pay for the debt? That arrival date kept getting pushed out. Weeks turned into months, and eventually the Prussians' IOUs were no longer accepted, and his friends and creditors were demanding repayment. Funny thing. It turns out the Prussian colonel was a fraud. But Sutter, having loaned this fraud $50, realized how well the scheme worked. The fraudster moved from town to town using this same con. And it worked. Every time. This becomes Sutter's masterclass in the confidence arts. Sutter already came with many of the traits to pull off this con. By adding self-proclaimed wealth, an important-sounding military ranking, and great storytelling to his existing military uniform, his nice clothes, good manners, and a few props, he can get money directly from people. He wasn't limited to banks anymore. And he proved he wasn't scared to run away from debt. And it was then, in St. Louis, Missouri, that John Sutter becomes Captain Sutter, rebranding himself as a member of the elite Royal Swiss Guards of King Charles X of France. He was a captain of artillery. He told wild stories, 
polite code for lying, about his European military exploits, extravagantly entertaining many men and seducing many women. He discusses his future as if it's already here or just about to happen. For the record, Sutter was never a captain of artillery or any captain in the Swiss Army, because during his time in Switzerland, there was no Swiss Army. He was a junior officer in the Reserve Corps. Fast forward a year, and Sutter finds himself in, surprise, surprise, Santa Fe, New Mexico, after convincing people in St. Louis to invest in his business venture. He arrives with $14,000. None of it was his money. And, quote, for those brave enough to invest in me. I'll have to use that line one time and see how it goes. And he creates a livestock business, starts some real estate ventures, and another dry goods store. Sutter has nothing to lose except his reputation, which in the United States, at least, he hasn't lost just yet. Sutter's heavy drinking sprees start around this time as his lavish entertaining increases. He also starts in the illicit horse business, which is to say buying stolen horses from the natives and then turning around and selling them to settlers. I assume that means selling them to different settlers than the ones who had their horses stolen in the first place. To recap, Johann Suter quickly leaves Switzerland to avoid debtor's prison and arrives in the United States in 1834 and becomes John Sutter. In 1837, Sutter, who was a junior lieutenant in the Volunteer Reserve Corps, quickly learns a new way to raise money in the United States and creates his modus operandi and persona as Captain Sutter of the elite Royal Swiss Guard. He begins his first of many ventures in New Mexico, where his spending, drinking, and womanizing start. His wife is back in Switzerland with the five children dealing with the debt he left behind. The idea of moving to the West, meaning west of the Mississippi River, and reinventing yourself isn't unique to Sutter. What he's able to do with this new persona is extraordinary. Extraordinarily good or bad is a matter of perspective and context when it comes to Sutter, but Sutter is just getting started, and he hasn't yet reached the shores of Monterey, California. This is a good place to break, so there will certainly be another episode. No one is all bad, and no one is all good. Humans are complicated, but some humans are more complicated than others. Sutter directly relayed his reminiscences to Hubert Howe Bancroft, which are transcribed and held at the UC Berkeley Bancroft Library. I have an appointment next month to see these for myself. Stay tuned for the next episode. Sutter is in the United States and headed for the West. He is just getting started, and this is a backstory worth telling. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with one friend. Sharing is caring. You can read today's transcript and locate the cited sources at monkeyblocksf.buzzsprout.com. Please favorite this podcast wherever you listen to be alerted when new episodes are released. You can visit monkeyblock at facebook.com forward slash monkeyblocksf or twitter.com forward slash monkeyblocksf or email me directly at monkeyblocksf at gmail.com. I enjoy hearing from you, dear listeners, so don't be shy. Thank you for listening. This is Monkey Block, retelling forgotten stories from San Francisco's 
Golden Past.